Welcome to the war from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, uh, email it to us, box13 at greatdetectives.net. The way that the war ended with the dropping of the first two atomic bombs opened a new chapter in warfare and brought us truly into an atomic age. With the Russians also having obtained the technology by 1950, there was a great deal of concern and agitation over what this would mean for the future of mankind. And so it was understandable that NBC did a summer series um, in uh, July of 1950, uh, a public affairs program uh, discussing atomic energy and uh, what the future held for this new age. The unlikely uh, host of this program, uh, from some perspectives, was Bob Hope. As the uh, Dennis at the digital deli FTP.com recounts, Hope had an everyday man uh, order. He was a very popular comedian and uh, really took up a, a, a uh, subject like atomic energy, which seem quite difficult and make it more accessible for the audience. We'll be bringing you the first two episodes of this series. So here from July 6th of 1950 is the episode A Chain Reaction. The Quick and the Dead. The NBC News and Special Events Department present the spectacular document for ear on the atomic bomb under the direction of Fred Friendly. This is Bob Hope. You see this piece of white, shiny metal about the size of, say, a package of cigarettes? You see this piece in my other hand about the same size? Together they weigh, oh, a few pounds. Both are hunks of uranium. Now, I take one and gently I tap it against the other. Now, hold on to your seats. That's an atomic explosion, just like the one that blew up Hiroshima. Two pieces of ore and you bang them together and you can destroy a city. Why? What has man done to these two pieces of metal? Now, you're probably leaning back and saying to yourself, what on earth is Hope doing talking about atomic energy? What does he know about physics? And you'd be right. I didn't even know what fission meant. Don't let that last word scare you. Fission is simply atom language for explosive. Or that an atom is so small that there are over a billion of them in every drop of water. That is until three weeks ago. I happened to look at my income tax form and I realized that I was a very big taxpayer and I knew that an awful big part of that tax was going toward atomic energy plants, of which I knew less than nothing. So one day I figured as long as I'm financing this project, I ought to kind of check up on things. So when I was in New York, I was sitting around chatting with some of the boys in the newsroom and then we got around to the atom. I told the boys I felt like a rube not knowing more about the subject and asked them to give me a quick once-over. This is Bob Trout in the newsroom. Let me tell you about Mr. Hope and how he became NBC's unofficial atomic expert. At first, we thought Hope was kidding when he said he wanted to get a little tutoring on atomic energy, and we told him to go see some scientists, like Einstein or Oppenheimer or Compton. No, no, that's not the kind of guy for me to talk to. I wouldn't know what they were talking about. I need a guy that talks at him like Bill Corm or Red Smith writes baseball. Then, Bob, the man for you to see is Lawrence. Who? Bill Lawrence of the New York Times. He's their science reporter, a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, 
and the only reporter allowed backstage at the building of the bomb. You go see Lawrence and tell him the boys in the newsroom sent you over. So what was I going to do? I'd ask for advice, so I had to at least make some kind of a gesture toward following it. I called Lawrence, and he told me to stop by for a drink. I walked east to his apartment on 72nd Street down by the river, climbed the four floors to his apartment, and knocked. Come in, Mr. Hope. I was a little surprised. He certainly didn't look like a hot reporter or my idea of a Pulitzer Prize winner. He was medium height, about 55 or so, with a rather thoughtful face and a slight accent. A little European and a little Harvard, I learned later. He sat me down by a window, asked me quite a few questions about Hollywood and Bing Crosby. Then this guy told me the darndest detective story I ever heard. I got so much out of it, I thought I'd like to share Bill Lawrence's story with you. It wasn't really my story. It was man's story. And perhaps the biggest news story of the 20th century. I was privileged to be tapped on the shoulder by the army and given the assignment that every newspaper man dreams of. Mr. Lawrence, we want you to work for us for a few months. It'll be on a highly secret, and it'll be a very important program. The general was Leslie R. Groves of the Corps of Engineers. We can't tell you where you're going. All we can say is that you uh, come to Washington and start to work. It's an important story. Maybe. It's a story that uh, we only want one man working on, and you're the man. Well, needless to say, Bill, you accepted General Groves' offer. Before you go into the business of how they discovered, then made the bomb, I wondered if you would mind going right to the last chapter of the story first and telling me about the first atomic bomb you ever saw go off. The first atomic blast I ever saw was the first one that man had ever seen. On July 16, 1945, a caravan of scientists in buses and trucks moved along Route 380 in the New Mexico desert through sleepy little towns like Los Lunas, Belen, and Bernardo into the Sierra Oscura mountain range. There, near an abandoned reservoir at Alamogordo, the titanic labors of our scientists were to be tested. A voice rang out somewhere in the black darkness and filled the night. It was almost 5.30 in the morning. A cold drizzle had been falling since midnight, and there was talk that the test might even be called off. On a tower 20 miles away from me, the first atomic bomb waited in its cradle, a $2 billion baby waiting to be born. Five miles away from the tower that held the bomb, Professor Robert Oppenheimer gave the signal that in a few seconds would set in operation the delicate mechanisms that would release the greatest burst of energy ever before released on Earth. No buttons would be pushed, no switches thrown. A series of robots were already in motion. The drizzle grew harder. A desert coyote howled in the distance for the last time. And just at that second arose from the bowels of the earth a light not of this world, the light of many suns in one. Don't be upset if you hear no sound. We are 20 miles away, 
and the sound travels much slower than light, it will be a hundred seconds till we hear it. It was a sunrise such as the world had never seen, a great green super sun climbing in a fraction of a second to a height of 8,000 feet, and then a great cloud rose from the ground and followed the trail of the bright new sun, an enormous cloud in the form of a mushroom, much taller than Mount Everest. I glanced at my watch. The hundred seconds were almost up. The sound of the explosion finally caught up with us. Out of the great silence came a mighty thunder. It was the blast of thousands of blockbusters going off simultaneously at one pinpoint. The thunder reverberated all through the desert and bounced back and forth from the Sierra Oscura Mountains. The air trembled beneath our feet like an earthquake. And as I listened to this great thunder trying to escape from the trap between the mountain ranges, I found myself asking again and again, what has man done to these two pieces of uranium? And how did it happen? that this secret had been given to us and not to our enemy. thoughts went back to 1939. Another man-made cloud had ascended on Europe. Adolf Hitler had already swallowed up Austria and Czechoslovakia and had his lightning poised towards Poland. In Italy, Benito Mussolini was too drunk with power to realize what great wealth he lost when he let Dr. Fermi get away from him. My name is Enrico Fermi. In 1938, I was given the Nobel Award for my work with neutrons and the atom. I had watched Mussolini lead my nation toward fascism and war. And like Maestro Toscanini and others, I knew I had to get out. When I went to Sweden for the award, my family and I left Italy for good. Dr. Fermi had only been in America a few short weeks when he realized that nothing was being done in the United States about an atomic bomb. And he went to Washington. In 1939, I asked for an appointment with the Navy Department. I told them that there was reason to believe that an atomic bomb could be built, and that one atom bomb could do the damage of hundreds or thousands of TNT bombs. They listened to me and told me they would think about it. I did not hear from them again. Now, wait a minute, Bill. Hold everything. What's a neutron? Fermi was given a Nobel Prize for his work with neutrons. What exactly had Fermi done that was so great? Well, here we have to get into physics for a second, Bob. Let's make it a rule. I'll never give you more than 60 seconds of physics at a time. How's that? That's a deal. All right, Bill. What's a neutron and what did Fermi do to it? First, let's take an atom. Everything on Earth is made of atoms. And an atom is the smallest part of any element. You can't make them, 
and no man had ever been able to destroy them. In one drop of water, Bob, there are one billion atoms. Say that again. One drop of water, there are one billion atoms. That's what I was afraid you said. Then a dime must have five billion atoms in it. Bob, a dime is made up of more than two million billion billion atoms. <laughs> then what's a neutron? Don't get ahead of me. Every atom has a nucleus, a hard center, so to speak. Oh, and I suppose a nucleus is about one-third the size of the tiny atom. Bob, the nucleus is one one-hundred-thousandth the size of the atom. And inside that nucleus is what we call the neutron. At last. And what does the neutron do for a living? No one knew it did anything. Until an Englishman named Chadwick discovered it in 1932. And then Dr. Fermi discovered that these tiny neutrons within the nucleus of the infinitesimal atom were actually bullets that could be fired out to split other atoms. Uh-uh. Minutes up. Let's move on. <laughs> All right, Bob. A deal is a deal. Let's go on with the story. Our next key witness is a woman, a German woman. My name is Lisa Meitner. It wasn't easy to leave Germany at my age, nor was it easy to leave my experiments at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute. If you were to see Lisa Meitner on the streets of Berlin in the late 30s, you would have observed a rather plain woman in her early 60s. If she appeared a little preoccupied and absent-minded, it was because this woman was on the verge of opening the door to one of nature's most guarded secrets. In 1938, the Gestapo forced her out of a laboratory and out of Germany because she was a non-Aryan. As my train crossed the border and thundered across the flat Holland marshes toward my refuge in Denmark, my mind kept going back to certain recent tests that I had been making with uranium ore. I had been bombarding uranium with neutrons and to my amazement was getting barium out of it. This seemed impossible. At first I thought I had used mixing vessels which had been used previously for barium. I got clean ones and started again. Still, I was getting barium out of uranium. Why? Then suddenly a strange thought struck me. Uranium has 92 protons. Barium has 56. The difference is 36. What has 36 protons? Krypton has 36. Could it be that I was getting Krypton along with my barium? I could scarcely wait to check this when I arrived in Denmark. If it was so, it could mean but one thing. Without knowing it, I had been splitting uranium atoms. Could such a thing be possible? 
The fact that Lisa Meitner had gotten barium out of uranium wasn't important in itself. The important thing was that she had taken the tightly clenched atom, holding itself together from the time the world began, and in gently forcing nature's hand open. This woman had unleashed an energy equal to 200 million volts, all from one single atom of uranium. Oh, that's a wonderful story, Bill. Well, in as early as 1939, we knew how to build a bomb. No, Bob. Far from it. Well, what was the hitch then? You said Meitner split the atom. I thought that... Yes, but Lisa Meitner split only one atom at a time. Just like getting one spark at a time. That hardly equals a fire. How do you build a fire at home, Bob? Hmm, with a match. That's right. And what starts it all? A spark, I guess. Exactly. But a spark is only the beginning. It has to start a series of other little fires. And they, in turn, start a series of still other little fires. Mm -hmm. You call that a chain reaction, don't you? Right. Well, Robert, one split atom is just one solitary spark. Lisa Meitner had given us that spark. Now, the scientists of the world set to work to find a way to keep that spark alive by having it start a series of chain reactions. To those of us who had fled from Europe, it appeared almost certain that Hitler's scientists knew as much as we did. Could the democracies be made to realize the danger which we scientists saw in our oscilloscopes? Our only chance was getting Professor Einstein to see Roosevelt. In the fall of 1939, Professor Albert Einstein wrote the following letter to the President of the United States. Dear President Roosevelt, some recent work by A. Fermi and L. Tillard leads me to expect that uranium may be turned into a new and important source of energy in the immediate future. This new phenomenon would also lead to the construction of bombs, and it is conceivable, though much less certain, that extremely powerful bombs of a new type may thus be constructed. I understand that Germany has actually stopped the sale of uranium from the Czechoslovakian mines that she has taken over. And a short time later, the Navy transferred the sum of $6,000 to our scientists. Less than one month later, Hitler sent his blitzkrieg against Europe, then the collapse of France, and the miracle that was Dunkirk and Britain standing alone. And at long last, Mr. Churchill. I speak to you for the first time as Prime Minister in a solemn hour for the life of our country, of our empire, of our allies, and above all, of the cause of freedom. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty, and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. And one of Mr. Churchill's first decisions as Prime Minister had to do with the atomic energy program. Britain agreed to send its best scientists to the United States. Our intelligence department told us that the German program was well underway. 
1941, our top scientists called a council of war. Could a bomb be built in time? Secretary of War Henry Stimson, who helped to make the final decision, along with FDR and General Marshall, called it a gamble. But as necessary in war, a calculated risk. We decided to go ahead. Our chips were finally in the pot. Two billion of them. The date was December 6th. December 7th, 1941. A date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. I remember that day all right. But Bill, I still don't see what we had to gamble on. We still didn't know if we could get that one split atom to start that chain reaction you were talking about. Exactly. So immediately, three great research centers were set up. One at Columbia, one at Chicago, and one at California. All were vital. But I guess the Chicago mission was the most dramatic. Arthur Compton, I was at Chicago with Fermi and Szilard. Our job was to build a pile of uranium and see if we could get that chain reaction going. Actually, you might say, it was an atomic bomb in miniature. My name is Rensler, director of research Westinghouse. One day, early in 1942, Dr. Compton called me and asked me how soon we could deliver three tons of pure uranium to him. We had been experimenting slightly with uranium and had assembled the enormous amount of a few grams by then, about as much as three dimes. But Dr. Compton said that it was vital to the war, and so we went to work. In November, 42, I was able to wire Compton and say that the three tons of pure uranium were on their way to Stag Field. Stag Field? Isn't that where the University of Chicago used to lose all its football games? That's right. But at Stag Field, in November of 1942, they were lining up for the most exciting game ever played in any stadium. Beneath the stands of Stag Field, there were squash courts. A cordon of guards were thrown around the entrance. Even the president of the university was not allowed in, and the most scientific bricklayers in history went to work. We had but one aim at Stagfield. We were after that chain reaction. We knew now that uranium was fissionable. We knew that if you put enough of it together, sufficient neutrons would begin bombarding sufficient atoms and forcing out other neutrons, which in turn would go into more atoms. The problem was how much pure uranium did you have to put side by side and on top of itself to get that pile going and still not blow yourself up. As a nest for their star about to be born, they built a timber framework resting on the lined squash court. And this, they were going to erect a uranium pile in the shape of a cake. I was one of the bricklayers. Uh, 
Actually, we couldn't lay the uranium one by one beside each other, or the neutrons would have shot out so quickly that we'd have lost them. So we put each piece of pure uranium in a graphite brick to slow down the action. And slowly we built our pile, brick by brick. Six tons in all, but ounces at a time. My job was safety. What we were doing had never been done before. We thought we knew what we were doing, but we also knew that we might accidentally start a premature chain reaction that would in an instant vaporize all the uranium and graphite, blow us sky high, and start a Chicago fire worse than the one Mrs. O'Leary's cow started. So we took precautions. We built ten slots through the pile, and into these slots we put rods of boron and cadmium. Now, don't let those words scare you. Boron and cadmium are simply metal rods. But for some reason, when neutrons strike them, they devour the neutrons, like cannibals. As long as we had those boron and cadmium rods in there, we were safe. They would act as fire dampers, firewalls, you might say. Well, with these rods in, how could they get the atomic fire going? Good point, Bob. They couldn't. But after the pile got near the estimated correct size, Dr. Fermi could give the signal slowly to withdraw the rods. Open the dampers, as we say. Zinn. I was one of those with his eyes glued on the neutron counters. As you might say, that told us how many neutrons were being born and how many were dying. On the 23rd day, our counters showed that we were making a lot of neutrons, but just as many were dying. When our instruments registered 1,600, it would mean that we were creating more than we were losing. We'd be in. Remember that figure, 1,600, and we'd be in. Around midnight of the 23rd day, one of the coldest nights of that cold Chicago winter, a bunch of weary bricklayers noticed a distinct change in the tempo. The pile was only three-quarters complete, but with every brick, the speed of the neutron counters seemed to increase. The next day was December 2nd. By noon, an air of tremendous expectancy and excitement had permeated every inch of the room. There they stood around their baby. Compton, Fermi, Zillard, Zinn, Anderson, and all the others. The counters were increasing their tempo. Within an hour, their first self-sustaining atom chain reaction in the history of man might be a reality. And then, Fermi, the imperturbable, looked up from his instruments and said, All right, boys, let's go to lunch. After the most preoccupied lunch in history, the bricklaying continued. 1350. The last eggs were gently nestled into place. 1370. 1385, 1400. Intently, we stood watching. 
Fermi, like a captain docking a great ship, maneuvered the cadmium rods into final position. Very slowly now, pull out the rods. 1425. 1450. Zip them out a little more. On Fermi's signals, we evenly withdrew our fire dampers. Keep going. Zip them out slowly. 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 1500. 1525. 1550. 1570. That's enough. No more. Hold everything. 80, 1590, 1600, 1610, Great Detectives of Old Time Radio, greatdetectives.net.